Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. Hope you're having a great Christmas. And as this is our last episode of 2021, we're going to look back over some of the many highlights we've enjoyed throughout the year. So sit back and enjoy it with us over the next hour or so, starting with Judd Trump. When we chatted in Leicester during the British Open back in August, it was time to reflect on how far he had come since running John Higgins very close in the World Championship final as a 21-year-old back in 2011. It was one where I was so young that, to be honest, I, I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't really know what I was doing. It was still, that kind of long-distance match was still kind of new to me. And I think nowadays in between sessions, I'm, I'm always so careful. I always just go to my hotel room and just literally lay on the bed for however long I've got just to try and sleep or, or, or save my energy. Back in those days, I was probably, um, I can definitely remember when I first qualified for the Crucible, sort of going out for food in between the sessions and being absolutely knackered by the time I um, got to the to, to the end of the game. Um, not as bad in that, in that tournament, but still there, there's so much that I know now that I could probably have done back then and... Um, I don't. I don't regret anything I did back then. It was just sort of at that point in my career. It's the point where you think it's going to last forever. You're going to get to the final every single year, and it's not until you kind of, until I got back to the final, I knew how hard it is then, mm. and it's kind of really sunk in. Um, and it, it probably, I, I, I wish I would have got to the final probably a bit older, so I was able to really take it in that little bit more. It was kind of just I took it took it in my stride a bit too easy and. It, it, it was, um, yeah, I think if it was two or three years down the line, I would have won that final. Well, ladies and gentlemen, he may not have won the title, but he has been the star of this championship. John, how much pride do you take in the achievement of getting to this final today? To get to the final is a good achievement, but obviously I would have uh, liked to win today. But uh, John was the better player on the day. Uh, I think he played the better snooker over both days, and I think he's a deserving winner. Tell us about the atmosphere. Gracious words from a young man. Everyone embraced you, the public, the media, everyone loved you at that time. And people talked about that you liked your fast cars and they had a real partying lifestyle. I mean, was that really true? Not, not really. I, I just think because um, that I think it was at the point where maybe the, the prize money started to pick back up again. Back, back in the 80s, 90s, snooker was on a sort of a, a level playing field with tennis, golf, that kind of thing. And, and it got left behind. Snooker struggled for a while. Um, but then it was just at the point where they kind of everyone was looking for someone to sort of spearhead the next generation. It was kind of just me. So I was always into my my cars and that um, family never had that kind of money. And as a kid, whatever the Lamborghini Ferrari is always a dream of everyone's. I, I kind of think, and I was able to sort of live that out early on, get that out of my system. And it was nice to do it so young that now I'm still an age in the snooker where I still around my prime or coming into my prime and I've got all that experience and all the stuff that I've learned over the past 10 or 15 years and, and able to use to my advantage over the next 15 years hopefully. There was massive expectation on you then after that because it wasn't just out of the blue you had of course won a big tournament just before Sheffield. Now for a number of years after that obviously you were always a top player and There'd be a couple of tournaments in the year where you'd hit top form and you were generally winning the tournament at least every season. But you weren't perhaps finding the consistency at that time. Do you think there's a reason for that? Um, I just just think that I just wasn't old enough. I wasn't mature enough as, as a person to, to embrace 
um, take everything in and be able to put the the work in that I do now um, to this extent. And for me, it's taken having my brother and having him there full time to, to play, um, to pick balls out, practice um, and and sort of look after me, be there at tournaments. It's, it's taken that and I, and I wish I'd done that early on in my career. Um, but it, it's it, it costs a lot in other sports people are top sportsmen are able to take four or five people around with them um in snooker not so much and it was something that i thought about for a couple of years before i did it and can i afford to do that and, and stuff like that and i just thought in the end of the day it's just sort of the difference between winning one final and losing a final could be the difference of having him there and it, i think we both felt that it was sort of best for me and it's turned out to be a sort of blessing in disguise but if that happened 10 years before, I, th I think I'd probably have double the ranking events or at least another 10, 10 titles to my name. I, I think it, it made that much of a difference. Um, the way I, I, I practice, my attitude towards the game, it's made me love the game again. And yeah, I certainly think that over the, the 10 years, I could have had at least a, a tournament a year um, extra. And when you talk about loving the game again, does that mean that there was a time where you maybe fell out of love with it? Yeah, I, th I think for for large parts of my career, I, I don't really enjoy it. It's become tough when you when you're playing on your own every day in practice. I've never been one to really play against players either. So, um, doing well uh, and being my age in, in snooker is is not something that comes easy because most of the people in snooker are a little bit older than me, sort of ten, fifteen years, and being stuck in China and places like that on your own is someone that you don't really have anything in common with anyone else um, can get quite lonely towards the end of the tournament. And um, I think there's, there's definitely five, six, seven times where I've got to sort of the quarter semi-final and just didn't want to be there anymore. And I think that affected the way I played. I ended up losing. Um, and I think I've won quite a few tournaments in China over the past two or three years, just having my brother there towards the end of the tournament, someone to chat to, go for coffee with and, and that's definitely helped. So you made all those changes and let's get to it then, the 2019 World Championship where it all really came together for you. I remember after the semi-final you said I'm playing John Higgins, I'm going to have to play the best snooker of my life and that's exactly what you did for two days. Yeah, I mean coming into the, the tournament, the first few rounds I wasn't very good, the the second round I think it was against Ding I was terrible um, I think I went 5 one in front, uh, I have no idea how. And then I honestly couldn't pot a ball. I was nine, seven down. And I think I went away that night. Um, I got my friend to do something to my tip, um, just trying to do it, try anything possible to get my head right. And then when I was practicing that night, I kind of just found something. And I can't remember if I told anyone um, at that point, but deep down I knew like something had clicked. And I, and I, I for some reason, everything kind of, every emotion just left my body and I, I kind of knew I was going to win the tournament from then. Um, not really had it very often, um, that feeling, but um, it was one where I kind of played the, the rest of the tournament knowing that deep down I thought I was going to win it. We've just had the Olympics and you hear in that a lot of the track and field athletes particularly saying that it's all about trying to peak for that one big day that comes around every four years or five years, in fact, in this case. Now, what you did was you went into the biggest match of your life and you played, as I said, the best snooker maybe that anyone's ever played over the course of a match. That must be unbelievably satisfying 
for a top sportsman to be in that situation and to really deliver to that extent. Yeah, it was um, it was a weird feeling because I can remember watching the I think it was Dave Gilbert and John Higgins in the other semi final and. I can remember thinking, do I want Dave Gilbert to win or John Higgins? And I think it was going close. Um, and I can remember just watching it, kind of like putting pressure on myself, thinking I want Dave Gilbert to win because he's never been there before and I would have been the favourite. And then I fell asleep during the last frame, I think. I woke up and John Higgins... It did Higgins, go on a long time. Yeah, yeah. And John Higgins had won. And now looking back, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because after what John had done to me in the final and quite a few times before I've played probably 95% of to the best of my ability and he's beat me on a deciding frame quite a few times and he's the only player I, I think that could have done that and I was just so up for it I knew I had to play absolutely amazing um, throughout the whole game and I did from the very start and I think he was staying with me at like 5 or I was 6-5 down thinking I can't I can't win here and then all of a sudden from somewhere, I think I played an amazing screwback shot and the game just changed after that. And um, I, I literally barely missed the ball for the rest of the game. We see it so often, first-time world champions, they struggle actually in the season that follows because the pressure is too much for them. Now, you went completely the other way. You had an even better season to follow that. So why was that? Was it a case that you just had more belief or was it that having experienced so much success in the 18-19 to 19 season, you were even more hungry then to have further success? Yeah, I think just the, the feeling of winning, um, just winning so many times, winning the World Championship, winning the Masters, it's just it's a high that you you don't want to get away. And I think I went away, I had a month or two off, but I was back practicing a month before the, the China event because I wanted to win it. Um, and I, I didn't want it to be a fluke. And I've seen Mark Williams, Stuart Bingham, both won the World Championship, but they took the foot off the gas mm -hmm. a bit and kind of had a season or two of doing nothing really and I didn't want that to happen to me and um, in snooker you can't take anything for granted if, if you kind of go away and disrespect the game you can't just get your confidence back like that it, it takes years really to get your confidence and I wanted to kind of push on in my career and I felt like I was just at the age where everything was falling into place and this is sort of my time to if I want to be out there at the end of my career I've got a really kick start now so you have the possibility now at the rate you're going to become the biggest ever winner of ranking titles. If you keep going at this rate, it's going to happen in the next few years. Given the choice between that and winning a few more world titles, it sounds to me like you would rather have the overall consistency and get the ranking titles record. Yeah, I think at the end, a snooker player is happy when he's winning. And for me, if I'm winning, to say, five world championships or 50 ranking events or five world championships and only 25 ranking events and 50 ranking events, but only two or three world championships, I'd take the 50 events because I'd rather be winning week in, week out than going six months without winning an event every time. I'd rather just every month, oh, judge one again, judge one again. It shows the consistency. I think when you're winning one or two events, it's, it's not easy, but you're always going to have a good spell during a, a year-long season where you come into some kind of form. So I just think being able to, nowadays with the, the people around and 
um, just bringing up Ronnie again, he didn't win an event last year. Um, and that just shows how hard it is to win events. So for me to win five events last year and six the year before, I think just goes a little bit unnoticed. So that's where you're at now, really, isn't it? You've been world champion. You've won the Masters. You've won the UK. You've been world number one for a long time. You've made a fortune out of the game. Now, I guess from here on in, it's all about just building that legacy as much as you possibly can. And from that point of view, you just go after everything and you want to do well in every tournament and take a relentless approach. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I don't care anymore. If I turn up to an event, I want to win it. Um, and if I if I don't feel like I'm ready or if I don't want to be there 100%, I won't enter the event. And in the past, I've probably been guilty of turning up events that I don't want to be at just for the sake of it. And I think it's something that as you get older, you kind of realize you take on that you there's no point making yourself unhappy to, to maybe nick an event. If you go there 100% in your own mind, then you've got a lot better chance. So... For me, it's, it's it's not about what event it is nowadays. It's just trying to win every single event as many times as possible, and and hopefully get to sort of do what I've done over the past couple of years. It's probably not achievable to do that every year, but I'll, I'll certainly be giving it my best shot. Well, since then, Jord has won the Champion of Champions, but he goes into the new year still looking to win a ranking title this season. The same can't be said of Mark Williams, who won that British Open more than a quarter of a century after his breakthrough triumph at the Welsh Open. Now that success in 1996 kicked off an extraordinary era for Mark, who told me about his early struggles to become good at the game and about his surprise at being on top of the snooker world at the age of 25. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it obviously was my dream if I could ever be world champion, world number one. That's what I aim for. Um, I didn't realistically think I would ever uh, do it, to be honest. Um, but... When it did come along, it was like, "Wow, well, I've done it. Um, what, what do I do now?" Is like mm. the, that that dream and the thing I was chasing. I've got it, and then all of a sudden, I didn't really know what to do and how to handle it properly, I suppose. And then took my foot off the gas a bit and wasn't play, playing as much as I should have probably done because I, I sort of like had nothing left to aim for. So I mm. got it and then let myself go a little bit. That weekend that you won the World Championship, you had two great comebacks, actually, in the semi-final against John Higgins and then against your good pal Matthew Stevens in the final. I think that was when it was really underlined to all of us, Mark, just how good your temperament was and how good you are at staying calm under pressure. Is, is that just your personality or is it something you've had to work on or is it maybe a bit of both of those things? Um, I, I don't think I've, I've worked on it. I've always just been the same, you know, even as a junior. I mean, the worst thing, I've always said it since I was... Oh, a kid, the worst thing you can do is lose, and and, and that's it, you know. Um, and then you go practice for the next tournament, and the worst thing is you're going to lose. Um, and that's the worst thing that can happen. And and I and I take that into every game. And you know, so what if you lose? It's not the end of the world. You've got another tournament next month or whatever. Just get on with it. There's no point if you beat yourself up at the table when you miss shots and I should have won that match and should have done this. You're going to find it very difficult to calm yourself down under pressure, thinking like that. And I've just always, always thought, you know, I go for my shots. If I leave them in, I'm not. Uh, I don't mind. I'm, I've never really been bothered of what people, the, the like commentators and what they say. I'm not really interested. If I see the shot, and I want to go for it, I'll go for it. I'm, I'm not interested in someone saying you shouldn't have gone for that. It's my game. I'm out there. I can do what I want. And uh, I, I always prefer going out. If I lose on a pot, on a pot, a mad pot, and a bad safety, mm. um, 
yeah, I've just, I've just always been like that. I mean, I think if a lot of players just think to themselves the same kind of way, it's not as easy to do as you think. That, then they'll do a lot better, you know. If, if there's nothing better, if you were playing someone and you can see them beating themselves up in the corner of shots they missed, it just gives your opponent so much more belief, and and, and you know you sort of got them. You know, don't try not to show your opponent anything. You've always really had that attitude. So when you came into the pro game and you saw how some players get down on themselves and beat themselves mm. up over defeats and setbacks, did that surprise you that it was like that? Um, yeah, because I never do it. I mean, you can count on one hand uh, the matches I've lost and I've been upset by them and gone home and and still upset them the day after. It just don't happen. I mean, as soon as I lose, I shake their hand. Obviously, I don't want to lose. I want to win. But when I when I lose, you've lost. There's nothing you can do about it. Why mourn about it? Just carry on with it. You, you know your life or your date, whatever. Just nothing you can do about it. You say there you lost your focus a bit after winning the world championship for the first time in 2000. But of course you won it again three years later, and you'd won the UK and the Masters that season. So how did you manage to get that motivation back then? In between, that's well, a good question. It was just you know obviously you get into rut. When you win, you get into a, you keep winning, and then obviously when you start losing, you get into a rut and you keep losing. And I just thought to myself, well, if I want to get back up the rankings, I, I know what I got to do. Um, I know how much I got to practice, and you know I done it. I went back to dedicating myself and practicing for the amount of hours you wouldn't believe, you know. Um, and, and I done it. I got back to the top, which no one thought I could ever do, and uh, it was sort of putting your fingers up, I suppose, a few people who thought your time had gone, really, and, and you'd done it, and unfortunately, I go back to the top again and took my foot back off the gas again. Yeah, well, for the next seven or eight years, really, after that, you were still a good player and getting good results, but I don't think anyone thought you were really living up to your potential. One thing about that era that those of us who were around the game at the time remember and it's something you have spoken about. There was a really bad atmosphere at tournaments because there was all the politics going on. People were falling out with each other. And that's not the sort of environment that someone like you wants to be in. So do you think that was something that maybe dampened your enthusiasm? Yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, it wasn't really a good place to go in a player's lounge. It was always bitterness everywhere. I mean, not like now you can go into the you know, tournament player's lounge now and you can have a laugh with almost every player in there. But it wasn't like that back then. There was a lot of in-house fighting and there wasn't many tournaments. And it was just, you know, you couldn't wait to play a match and then go back to your hotel room, really. Or mm-hmm. all I used to do was have a game of bingo or something like that. Just, it wasn't nice hanging around the players' lounge. Oh, send over to five. The blue finishes on the floor. But that doesn't matter. Mark Williams clinches the title with a break of 77. Mark Williams beats Ken Doherty by 18 frames to 16 to win the £270,000 first prize and win the Embassy World Championship for the second time. You got back to number one again in 2011 after all that era and then it sort of fell away a bit to the point where you were talking about retirement as recently as 2017. Was it a case with you, because it's certainly the sense I get, that once you had decided you were going to continue playing, that you took an attitude of, right, if I'm going to do this, I'm really going to do it properly now. And you started working with different coaches and trying new things. Uh, yeah, I, w- I was um, 
I did want to retire. There's not not two ways about it. I did. I, I spoke to my wife. I said, look, I really think I, uh, I'd like to retire, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was even talking about moving abroad somewhere to live. And, you know, she just, we had a good chat about it for a few days. And, and she said, well, she wouldn't even entertain the idea until her kids were all 18 and moved out. And she said, what, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? You play golf now anyway and play snooker. So why don't you just carry on? And when the kids are all 18, then we'll have another chat about it. So, you know, after a couple of weeks, I thought, yeah, okay, you know, I'm going to carry on, but I'm not going to carry on the way I'm going because there was just no point. I was getting beat uh, going home. And then I, it was uh, Lee Walker that said, he was asking me for a long time to get involved with Steve Feeney and Sight Right, and I always put it off. Uh, it's a standard joke with us. I've always called it Sight Wrong for years <laughs> and years. Um, and he just kept on and on and on, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to carry on, I'm going to give it a go. And uh, he arranged, he brought Steve to my house, and we had, well, 20 minutes I was with him. Because uh, it's amazing what he does. It's totally different to any other coach thing. You know, he can show you uh, everything just out to play with your eyes or just, you have to try as hard to explain but within 20 minutes I just thought yeah that's for me that that, that makes sense and and then I, I used that and I practiced like you wouldn't believe you still got to practice no matter what you do and uh, just give me a new new sense of belief and you know I played some of the best that I played for, for donkey's years and you know without Stevens and Sight Right I would never have got back to the top of the rankings and never would have won nowhere near winning a world championship and uh, you know them couple of years I think I got the quarterfinals of almost every tournament won a few and won the world to cap it off and you know I played some of the best stuff I've ever played When it got to the 2018 world championship you'd shown a good bit of form during the season you'd won a couple of tournaments and we were all saying yeah Mark Williams could win the world championship again when it actually happened, it was like, wow, this is incredible because it's been 15 years. And even though we'd all expected it, it still came as a little bit of a shock because you'd gone so far down the rankings a year or so earlier. I did get a sense from you, actually, that even you seemed a little bit dazed that it was like, I can't actually believe that I've come this far and done it in such a short space of time. Would there be some truth in that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of world championships I went into. Um, I sort of knew I may win one game two games tops and that was it but going into 2018 because of the season and I was just so consistent that you know I I just looking at the draw and I looked at everything I thought I'm definitely going to be in the semi-finals I just couldn't see myself not getting to the semi-finals and uh, you know once I'm in the semi-finals then I'm thinking you know I've got a chance to win it you're still thinking well I'm not too sure but uh, you know and then I'm obviously scraped through the semi-final I could have gone either way and uh, when I got the final it's probably the best match match I've ever been involved with all the way through it was just I took a massive lead he kept coming back and then the last session was just nuts it was a 50-60 in front all time he kept clearing up and uh, not for one minute did my head drop uh, I missed a pink to win it uh, a frame earlier he dished up not for one second did I think oh I've blown my chance it was no nerves in my body at all I wasn't shaking at all and uh, I come out and probably made one of the best breaks I've ever had but uh, I've been lucky in the way in my career that I hardly ever shake even if I'm under pressure I'm never shaking my, hardly ever my hands or legs are shaking the odd occasion it does but 
under the most extreme pressure, I, for some reason, I don't know, I just seem to go even more relaxed. When Alex Higgins won the World Championship again, Mark, after a long gap, he famously had one child in the arena with him. Now, you had three kids, all three of them, with you on that night. Usually, when someone wins something like that for the first time, that's always the most special. Is there maybe a chance that 2018 was the most special? Because the three boys hadn't even Mm. been born the previous times you'd won it, and now they were all there to see it, and they'll have that memory with them forever. Yeah, without doubt, um, it's the best moment of feeling in my life uh, as a snooker player. Uh, That's the only tournament they've ever seen me win. I've always been China, Ireland or whatever. They never see me win win one. So to have them there as well. And it's only when I look back and see little replays of the frames and they're up in the the stands and when John keeps cleaning up on me, they're biting their nails and Ed in their hands. And, you know, they're the ones look under pressure. I was calm as Mm. as anything down there. But it's only when you see them after you're thinking... All the emotions they must go through, just watching. Because I watch when my friends play, I hate it. I mean, I, my hands go all sweaty, my hands are sticky and shaky, and, and that's just watching someone else. But when I'm playing, I don't get none of that. So I, I know watching it come them, some, some of them clips back, and then obviously they come out at the end, and uh, it was just probably the best. Well, it is, it is without doubt the best snooker day of my life really you were 43 then you'd been 25 when you first won it normally in a situation like that you'd expect that when you win it as a youngster you go wild with the celebrations and then when you win it again as a middle-aged man with three kids it's all a bit more low-key but you did it the other way around yeah I had uh I had a pint of milk for my first championship win and then I just snuck off early out to the party afterwards and my last win well I lost I was counting how many bottles of beers we had. We was all in the after party singing away. And it didn't start till late, probably about 12 or something. But I think it was 7 o'clock in the morning we left, come out. It was bright light. Went back to the hotel for another couple. And oh, I was just, I had all my friends there. Obviously, the missus was there. The kids were in bed after about 2 in the morning. But it was just, I was just like a, just like a night out on the town with all your mates and, and your missus and kids. You know, it was just brilliant. What a match, what a performance. John Higgins gets out of his claps his hands, and well played, and the family go berserk. Mark Williams, he was going to give up four years ago, but he's now back in the big time. John Higgins giving it his all. But in the end, Mark Williams was just too strong, and Mark Williams becomes the 2018 Betfred World Snooker Champion for the third time. And given Mark's tendency to defy expectations again and again throughout his career, who's to say there won't yet be a fourth? It seems to have become something of a theme on the World Snooker Tour podcast this season, to talk with left-handed world champions. There have only ever been three of them, and in addition to Judd and Mark, I also spoke with Neil Robertson in Belfast back in October, when, as you'd expect, there were many reflections on the night he beat Graham Dot to become the Crucible's first Australian champion 11 years ago. I remember um, when I won the semi-final, my mum had left a voicemail saying that she just left Singapore. Um, and she left a voice message at like when I was uh, 11.5 up or something against Ali. Um, so she had no idea until she landed in the UK that I'd, whether I'd be in the final or not. Um, so that kind of really added a lot of pressure. For one, it was like incredibly emotional seeing my mum for the first time in uh, sort of like about 10 months. 
Um, and then she was there on the fi- on the day of the final. So I was like really thinking like, you know, I just don't want to kind of like let her down, you know, um, which kind of really w- was difficult to deal with from an emotional point of view because uh, as soon as I won the semi-final, I was extremely confident no matter who I was playing in the final I was, that I was going to win. Um, I was playing incredibly well. Um, you know, apart from that last sort of few frames against Ali, I was, I was pretty much flawless. And I think he's even said so himself. Um, and then, um, yeah, so going into the final uh, where, where it was Graham, um, who had been in the final before and obviously beat me in the quarters in 2006 when he went on to mm. win it, when, you know, when he beat me 13-12. So, and Graham was like one of those players where, you know, he's a top, he was, he's a top 16 player all day long, especially at the time. But then, but when it comes to the Crucible, he's always like a top four or five player. You know, it's just a completely different animal altogether when, you, when you're playing Graham at the Worlds. And so um, I remember starting off a little bit shaky. Uh, I went 5-3 down. Um, he certainly seemed to deal with it better with, the, you know, more experience and that. Um, but then the second session, I played really, really well um, and could have easily been... Um, you know, sort of 10-6 up really. I was 9-7 up in the end, but I, I probably should have been further in front. And it kind of set the tone really for the last sort of session and a half where I kept sort of going in front and Graham just, you just never give in. And, um, you know, even if, you know, even if, um, you know, he needs three or four snookers with one red left, he's carrying on and, you know, the frame's going for like another 20, 25 minutes and it's just really hard to just like, you know, you, you think he's sort of knocked him down for the final time and he just keeps getting back up all the time. And, you know, players like that are very tough to shake off. And um, so the last session became like a real sort of slog and where it was all about sort of um, mental concentration and who could sort of really last the longest. And then I could tell he was really... I, f- I could tell that he was starting to really fatigue a lot um, around, I think, around maybe like when I went 13, 11 up or something. I could I could start to see him sort of just tiring and so then all of a sudden I wasn't in any rush to make it an open game because I know that he would probably start to prefer it to be more open because he doesn't have much concentration left um so then I thought right well now I'm gonna sort of give him some of his own medicine I suppose by making it really tough as well and um at the time I'd accumulated enough experience to uh, know how to make that kind of happen I think you've seen We've seen sort of Selby over the years and Higgins over the years be able to sort of really turn the turn the screw on, um, make things really tough for the opponent where they get to the point where they have to start taking sort of risks that they wouldn't normally take. And um, so I was really happy with how how I was able to pull that off. And um, yeah, it was really tough. It was it was exhausting the last couple of frames. But um, I think that when you're in the world final, you you, you do absolutely whatever it takes to win. And um, yeah, so yeah, an incredible, incredible moment. What was it like in Australia in terms of the reaction to your success? Was it what you expected it would be? Yeah, it was huge. It was like front page news. Like I was branded as, you know, our world champion. Um, I think um, the only, well, the only thing about it was is that um, Alexander was, was, Miller was due to give birth to Alexander within like a few days of the final. So, um, I couldn't really go back home to Australia and absorb it all instantly straight away. Um, had to wait a couple of months until I could, well, about another sort of six weeks until I could go back home. Um, but when I did, I was on loads of like TV shows and like radio and Eddie Maguire, the president of the Collingwood Football Club, who is my, that's my AFL team, which is like, you know, the, the biggest club in Australia. Um, I was talking to him on the radio. He loved it because he knew that I was a big Collingwood fan. 
Um, and he said that when I come home, they'll parade the World Championship trophy around the MCG for me before like a really big Collingwood match. And so I did that in front of 83,000 at the MCG on, on, on the, on the, in the car in an open, open yeah, car. I've seen the pictures. Like it looked going amazing. around, just yeah. like, wow, it was just absolutely unbelievable. And um, that was just absolutely incredible, you know, to do that. You know, Collingwood St Kilda, which, um, which ended up being the, the, the grand final a couple of months later where Collingwood won. So it was an amazing sort of, sort of year for me where I became world champion. Chelsea did the double. They won the league. They won the FA Cup. Alexander was born. I got to world number one for the first time. Collingwood won the AFL grand final. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty awesome year. Yeah, you would have loved 2010 to go on forever, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite an achievement in itself that this long after winning the world championship, Neil, you still go there every year as one of the favourites. Now, you haven't managed to win it again since. You haven't actually been back to the final. And a lot of people have made out that you've got some sort of mental block now about the Crucible. But the thing is, it's getting harder all the time, isn't it? And it's not as if you're getting knocked out by low-ranked players. It's generally real superstars of the game who are stopping you. Yeah, that's it. I think uh, every year I go in as one of the favourites, and, you know, rightly so. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, the last three three years, the quarterfinals, I lost to, you know, Higgins, Selby and Curran, who have got as good a record as anyone there in the tournament in the last 10 years. So... You know, what I found is is that, um, you know, I come up against the attacking players and we go toe-to-toe and I always come well out on top. Um, obviously, you're not going to play players who want to play the way that you want to play and especially at the Crucible, they have time to stop you. Um, whereas even in a best out of 19, you can take the game away from someone very quickly. Um, and I think that um, at the Crucible, it's always been that, that kind of second session where... Um, you know, even one where, where I was playing Barry Hawkins, I went out in front early, but he just never went away. Um, and, and the same with um, with Higgins and Kyron. Mark Mark played the whole quarterfinal two years ago on his terms. It was very tight. Every frame seemed to go for 45 minutes, and it was really, really tough to break him down. And um, it was just a masterclass of sort of safety and defensive play. It was, it was incredibly, completely shut me out. And um, something I said that I'd never let happen ever again. And you know the way I played um, last season sort of certainly showed that. But you know, Karen still found a way to, you know, if there was a couple of mistakes in the frames or if my my positional play was just my positional play was about five percent off from completely just running away with that match. I, I remember going five two in front. Um, I had half a chance to go six two. If I go six two, then in my eyes, I think the match is over. I, I you know, going six two up, I, I can't really see anyone in the game coming back against me in, in, in that kind of format I think that I just run away with it so that's what I was looking to do last year and I was really close to breaking the game open against Kyron on a few times I just lost the white a couple of times and then I missed like the, the sort of six out of ten recovery pot required to win the frame I remember that happening a few times in that second session where I could have forged on you know maybe going three four frames in front and then you know then kind of like the match is almost over really um, and then you know, but then all of a sudden we're pl- you know a couple of mistakes. We're playing 35, 40 minute frames. You know, I'm losing my rhythm. He's got a very good technique where um, he's very set and, and the same every time, and he plays it like a kind of like a slower kind of tempo that he's more accustomed to. Um, and and then the final session, uh, he played amazing snooker really. But um, yeah, no, he played really well. And, and like you say, I've lost to kind of crucible specialists. You know, I think that um, I think that uh, 
probably what went wrong last year in the quarterfinals. I noticed that um, William Williams was doing that break off where he's just rolling in behind yeah. the pack and you're not leaving a red on. And that when I was playing Jack, I kept breaking off. The break off was fine, but I kept sticking reds out all the time, like comfortable shots to nothings. And Jack kept knocking him in, but he wasn't uh, quite as clinical as maybe what he could have been. Um, because I was playing very well, so any kind of mistake he was making, I was winning the frame in one visit. And I think that was maybe in the back of his mind, thinking, well, if I make a mistake, he'll clear up. So against Kyron, on the first session, I was breaking off and I was leaving Kyron these long reds, but he wasn't knocking him in. And I was probably thinking, well, you know, do I really want to keep sticking these balls out? And so I noticed Ronnie started rolling up behind the pack and then Higgins started doing it. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe there's like something to this. So then I started doing it and I started doing it in the second session. And the thing is, is that when you start doing that roll up behind the, um, the pack, the frames very rarely do they become like open frames, open scoring frames, because you get a lot of safety battles at the start and then not many reds come out off the break off. And so I feel as though I lost all the moment, all the attacking momentum and it probably fell into Kyron's hands a little bit. And um, so maybe that's where, you know, I think that at the Worlds, maybe you just got to have one or two people around you who are there with you just to keep an eye on things and make sure that you're always dictating the pace of the game because I feel as though every time I've lost there, it's always been to someone who's really sort of gritty determined, who's not going to go away, who makes it really tough. And I, and it keeps happening every year where I lose the match and I'm thinking like, you know, I should have just been over-aggressive, if anything, not sort of be too cautious. And I think Kyron pointed that out, I think, after, um, in his interview afterwards. He felt as though I kind of started to play within myself a bit and, and he, he was absolutely right, I did. I started to kind of not take the risks that I would normally take. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I paid the price once again. So sort of going back next year, I have to be willing to lose a match sort of 13-4 and... and and go at it playing my way because I know that if I get to the semi-finals then it's just a completely different ball game it's one table set up you've got all the room you've got the whole crowd watching you it's a completely different type of pressure and the kind of pressure that um, the type of pressure I really thrive in so that, that's the task that, that's facing me at the world it's, got, it's no, no, not a mental block or anything like that like if I ever I've never sort of um, missed any crucial frame balls or anything like that it's just that you know you, at the World Championships, you really need to um, really need to get the game plan right, and and I think safe to say I've probably got that wrong the last few years going into quarterfinals against really gritty, determined opponents. You know, you can't you can't play Sean Murphy, Jack Lazowski, and Mark Allen every round. You know, you're going to have to play a guy that will make it really, really tough for you because you know I think especially watching the Tour Championship, whoever took me on aggressively, you know, um, copped a heavy beating. Um, and then even when I played Mark in the semi-final, I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to be over-aggressive because if I start playing long frames against Mark, then you're going to become second best. And I probably didn't have that mindset against Kyron. I probably wasn't aware of how good he was at sticking in and being really determined. I always saw of him more as an attacking kind of player, which he is. He is a very good attacking player, but he's also got the side of the game where he can really get stuck in and, and win the gritty frames as well, which um, maybe I slightly took for granted because I haven't seen a lot of Kyron play. Um, you know in that type of sense so yeah it's it's something that um, hopefully I've learned the final lesson with that and um, yeah can start playing all the matches on my terms and, and win it a few more times. Kyron himself has also been among our guests this year inevitably we talked about that extraordinary decider in his world semi-final against Anthony McGill the season before last in an empty arena during the strictest days of lockdown and of course the emotional way in which Kyron greeted his victory. A lot of the time I wear my heart on my sleeve and I think a lot of people have probably seen that um, due to the amount of crying that's happened over the years. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
yeah, you know, I put a lot into it. Um, you know, I want to be the best that I can. I want to make people proud. And um, sometimes you just got to let it all out. And uh, yeah, you know, it was an amazing occasion for me. Um, and the amount of sort of support I've had off the back of that and people saying what an amazing frame of snooker that was. And the viewing figures I remember were amazing for that. For well, that everyone was at home, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I remember Barry Stark, my coach, saying to me, you know, I'm really looking forward to watching you today because, you know, there's not really much else going on in the world. And I think with snooker being on at the time um, with with COVID, it's giving people sort of the boost that they need sometimes, just to have a bit of live sport. So that really hit home, sort of how lucky I was to be out there at the time as well. Great then that there was a crowd, up to a limited number anyway, for the final. What's that like, Kyron, when you wake up one morning, you come round, you rub your eyes and you think, oh, I'm playing in the World Championship final today. It must be surreal the first time it happens. Yeah, it, to be honest, it was it was a really strange um, occasion for me. Um, I actually... I didn't really get much sleep off the back of the semis with with Anthony. You know, with what happened, I found it really hard to bring myself back down to earth after that match. And unfortunately, I had a fire alarm that went off in my hotel at six a.m. Oh, that the morning. Last thing you need. Yeah. So I, off the back of having about two, three hours sleep and then being woken up by a fire alarm that morning, um, I felt absolutely exhausted. Um, the first session, I was just non-existent for that final and. Um, you know, going forward, that really has taught me a lot, sort of how to deal with sort of getting to that last phase. Because I think one of the famous quotes that Stephen Hendry said was, even even though you're at the semi-finals and you're only two matches away, in terms of frames that you need to win, you're actually only halfway there. And going into the final, that really hit home because, you know, I was absolutely shattered. But you seemed to find something on the Saturday night. And even though Ronnie had got himself into a strong position, you did get yourself to a place where... you. We're back in contention there and, and perhaps could even have been in a better position at the end of Saturday's play. Yeah, um, I can't remember what the score was. I think I ended up 10-7 down, but I think I was something like 7-2 down um, and should have ended the session. Uh, I think it was 9-8. Um, I missed a sort of tricky red along the cushion, final red along the cushion. If that goes in, um, I finished the session one frame behind. And you know, going into the final day, I think Ronnie probably would have felt you know, that he should have had a stronger lead than that being 7-2 up. So, you know, maybe in terms of psychology, I would have been in a slightly stronger position. And then the final day was tough, wasn't it? Because you really needed to get off to a fast start. And once Ronnie had pulled a little further clear, there was a bit of inevitability, really, about how it was all going to finish. Yeah, um, I kicked off the the first frame with a long red. And I remember making a, a one visit, I think it was a 70 break and felt really good straight off of that. And, um, Ronnie then sort of presented me with a, with a clearance where I was about 40 or 50 behind. And I missed a bit of a cutback pink into the middle. And from there, I kind of really found it hard to regain my composure after that. And, um, you could tell that Ronnie had, had sort of been putting the time in that morning cause he looked really, really sharp. And, um, you know, showing the great champion that he is, he just sort of kicked on from there and, you know, was almost unstoppable. In a way, it's probably easier to take when it's been like that than maybe if you'd gone really close and it had been 1816, 1817, something like that. Um, I don't know, really. I think I would rather put up more of a fight um, and lose sort of closer. Um, that's just sort of who I am. I'd rather, you know, feel like I've left absolutely everything out there and sort of walk away and think, Do you know what, I couldn't really have done much more from that. But... Yeah, looking back, I, I did feel like there was more I could have done. But, you know, we, we sort of learn from those experiences and that's what I've chosen to do.
That's the end. I'm looking for Aaron Wilson in the background. He's one of the nicest lads you could ever wish to meet. He's got all his family here with him, and he's got nothing to be ashamed of. He has put up a fantastic 58. display throughout this year's Betfred World Championship. He really has. Six world titles for Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan. Unbelievable. Just one away from Stephen Hendry's record. I did get the sense overall you were primarily just really pleased with having done so well in the World Championship. <clears throat> and great to have your boys there at the finish out in the arena with you. Yeah, um, you know, it'd been tough because for the World Championships every time I probably, I dedicate, you know, four to six weeks at least of just, I feel like I go into training camp like I'm a boxer or something and, you know, I start sort of dieting, you know, um, exercising as much as I can and the hours I put in, I'm more or less doing six to eight hours every single day. So um, it was nice to then see them and have that sort of release and, you know, you, you then sort of turn into a father again because, you know, in this sport you have to be very, very selfish and I'd been selfish for the best part of six weeks, like I say. So it was lovely to see them there after the final. Now, you didn't have to wait a full year for the chance to then get back to the Crucible and try to go one better because obviously the 2020 Championship had been put back by a few months. Got to the semis and just couldn't quite put Sean away is it something you look back on now with regret no not really um you know again I, I think it was really good for me really positive that we got straight back into the season because it didn't give me time to dwell um you know I just cracked on straight away um and was very consistent as a result of that and going into the world championships again I felt really really good going into it and you know it felt like I was sort of getting stronger as each round went on um and yeah, obviously, Sean just played absolutely out of his skin, didn't he? Um, you know, some of the balls he was potting was absolutely outrageous. So I look back on that and I think, you know, the better man won on that day. It's funny to think you're going to be the same age when next year's World Championship comes around as Stephen Hendry was when he won it for the last time. The thing is, back then, that was almost old for a snooker player, which mm. is amazing to think now. But nowadays, it's absolutely nothing. And as I was saying, you're younger than all the other players near the top of the ranking. So in some ways, you probably feel you're just really at the beginning of things. Yeah, as you mentioned before, um, I turned professional in 2010 and you know it took me two years to get back on there. So I kind of felt like sort of 2013, that's sort of where I've really gone on to become an actual professional snooker player. So sort of in hindsight, you know, seven, eight years as a professional isn't a massive amount of time. And I feel like if you look at my stats, I'm always improving year on year. So um, I think if you can always better yourself each year and you know, not really focus on what's going on around you, then, you know, you're going in the right direction. And some people might look at that and say, oh, well, obviously he's going to take over in a few years because all these guys are getting older. But they're still really good, aren't they? They're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, and, you know, you can't be complacent. There's lots of young talent coming through. There's lots of great Chinese players coming through. And, you know, these people are only going to get better and stronger. And I'm looking at the likes of John Higgins, who's lost so much weight, and you're thinking... Like, you know, he wants it. And I, I love seeing that in people. And, you know, he's obviously going nowhere anytime soon. Mm. Can you be the best in the world, Kyron? Can you be number one someday? That's the aim. I'd, I'd like to think so. And what do you feel you need to do? If you keep going on the path you're on, do you think that can get you there? Or is there some way you feel you need to improve to take that big step? There's always lots of ways that you can look at improving. Um, you know, health and fitness is obviously a big one. But I believe it's sort of not about being stagnant. Um, if you can look for something each year to maybe take your focus away and improve on that one thing, 
um, that's massive, but don't fill your boxes with too many things. Of course, it hasn't just been the very top players we have welcomed to the podcast this year. Far from it. We've had teenage prospects Sean Maddox and Aaron Hill, ranking event winners Matt Selt, Dave Gilbert and Matthew Stevens, and others who fall somewhere between the two, like Gary Wilson. Gary's been around for some time now, and although he's yet to win a ranking tournament, he's gone close a few times, not least when he attracted much attention as the former taxi driver who got to the semi-finals of the 2019 World Championship. He put up a good fight against Judd Trump, who, as we heard earlier, went on to win the title. And a couple of years on, Gary has still got many regrets about that match. Judd wasn't playing that great to start with neither, so I was I was getting ahead and I was then I was sticking with him. He was going ahead again and I was just sticking with him and hanging on and sticking with him and hanging on, but not really feeling like I was playing good yet. I was waiting for us to step up a gear and I, st- I still hung on to sort of 9-7 um, and then it slowly started slipping away. My standard wasn't improving when I knew it had to and his standard was slowly starting to get better and better and that was the story of the match to be honest and once he got the 14-10 lead at the end of that session going into the last session I knew it was going to be uphill struggle. I still had every faith that if I play well I've got a chance of winning this but yeah, my standard throughout the whole match just didn't improve. And uh, as I say, his did. That's, what again, what champions do as well. So I just need to, um, well, I needed to reflect on that. And, you know, at the end of the day, the reflection was I just wasn't playing well enough. There was nothing about nerves or the experience or anything that I felt was the problem. The one table set up, like the occasion, none of that. I, I was just playing another snooker match in my head and it felt I felt I felt quite good in that sense. It was just I wasn't playing well enough. I wasn't happy with how I was playing in general. So I had to look back on that and try and improve. I remember being in the press conference when the match was over and I remember thinking this is a bit of a shame really because you didn't actually seem all that happy with what you had accomplished. You seemed to be downbeat about the whole thing. And Was that something just in the spur of the moment? And Later when you looked back you thought actually that was a really good tournament for me. Uh, kind of. I mean obviously you do look back on it and go wow like obviously that was a great run. You'd take that all day long at the start of the tournament especially if I've never been that far before. But at the same time, I'm a natural competitor. I mean, like I say, when I was younger, I'm used to winning. Obviously, not so much on the tour at all. I've never won a tournament. But there's chances come around where you can possibly win one, and that's the biggest one of all. And if I feel like I've not played as well as I can play, then I'm sorry, I'm going to be disappointed. And if I, people don't understand that, then that's that's their problem, not mine. You know. I, also, I, I do take the positives, but as you say in the interviews, I guess it can't come across more negative than positive but I'm not going to sit there in the interview and start spieling off all the positives about me game when I've just lost mm. I'm going to be reflecting on why I've lost and why I've not played very well and, and the important thing is to be honest in a situation like that I anyway have. which a lot of people aren't in that situation yeah. but you were saying what you felt so that's all I am enough. and that's all I try and do without being rude or abrupt too much or all I try and do is be honest with anyone in any interview without as I say without being rude or saying anything I shouldn't and uh, that's all I did I, I, I said why I felt I wasn't playing great I said why I lost and deserved to lose and obviously why I wasn't happy about it but yeah of course you look back on it and you go yeah it was a good run yeah obviously I'm really happy with that the money the, the prize the, the rankings the, the being able to play at the one table set up brilliant absolutely great memories of it not quite but that will be good enough Gary Wilson shakes his hand and says I'm sure best of luck tomorrow he did all he could Neither player really reached the height of their ability, but that's what can happen in a semi-final. 
It gets harder with the way the tournament goes on. Gary Wilson leaves the arena. But if the judge Trump will be coming back tomorrow to try and rectify that defeat against Sean Higgins in 2011. He runs out what looks like a comfortable winner. Maybe it wasn't, but he's in the final. I've actually had a splashback made from my kitchen um, where it's there's a photo some, someone did of us walking down in the first session, down the steps. Just, just as you're coming into the arena floor, they've got a photo of us. Um, it's like a black and white photo, it looks really cool and I had decided to get that made into a splashback for my kitchen so it's mm -hmm. obviously a great memory which I'll always treasure you know and I hope I can get that far again someday um, in the next few years and you know obviously hopefully go further and that's one of my ambitions obviously try and win the world championships as well as just winning a tournament anyway but of course I do look at the positives, people might not realise that um, obviously I, I'm grateful for everything that I've got as well but yeah, of course. Like a competitive player that I am, I'm going to be disappointed when I lose. And it wasn't just your kitchen you got done. You were getting work done on a house around that time, which just dragged on and on. And that became a real problem for you, and it affected your game for a, a lot of the yeah. subsequent period. Like, listen, like the last couple of years, in all honesty, has been a complete nightmare. <laughs> like, ever since, ever since that run in the World Championships, we went on a couple of amazing holidays. Um, so I've really enjoyed myself, went to America to see family, we've been to Hawaii, we've been to Singapore, we were all in one kind of trip as well, we've been around the world for three weeks to be honest, me and, me and Rob and me missus, and we just had a great time, and then the start of the next season came about, and I struggled a bit, um, won a few, struggled a bit, not too bad, and then obviously Covid started kicking in, and the house started kicking in as well. It was around the end of 2019 where we'd, we'd already done the plans and everything. We were just ready to get on with the builders. And long story short, yeah, as I say, from the end of 2019, whether it be COVID, what house, all all rolled into one, everything just started going pear-shaped massively. <laughs> and it wasn't until, I would say, the turn of the new year, this year, where I started feeling a bit better um, and where... I'd actually changed practice venue. Um, I actually I play full time at Paul Ronaldi's Northeast Snooker Centre now, which I hadn't been before. I'd been swapping between my old club Gateshead and sometimes going to Paul's as well. So I'd, I'd changed a few things in my life. Things were settling down with the house a bit more. You know, all, all the major issues had gone, and I'd I'd sort of got into Paul's and got my own table set up and everything. The same as what Elliot's got. We've got our own table now, so everything was starting to fall into place a little bit more with the snooker. The house, as I say, was getting sorted a bit more and my head was getting a little bit clearer. Still felt a bit of depression and stuff because I, I had quite a bit of that for quite a few months. Would you go so far as to say, Gary, that in a medical sense it was actually full-on yeah, depression? 100%. Because I'm not the type of person to dwell on anything or, you know, milk anything or anything like that. You know, like I usually get on with stuff and not bothered by it by anything but I was going to say you seem very mentally tough yeah but it just shows that with everything that's gone on the last couple of years Gary yeah. everyone's vulnerable to this sort of thing even I was gone like and I, I didn't want to accept it that's how much I'm not like that I didn't want to accept that there was a something wrong but I knew I was I was different Robin even said I was different she's actually got a photo of us in one of our rooms that wasn't quite finished yet where I look honestly like six stone wet through me I've got like a skeleton face and I'm I'd, I'd lost weight even me like I'm like, I'm yeah, you'd struggle to lose weight, Gary. There's not much to start <laughs> well, I'm with. I'm built yeah. like a raffle ticket as it yeah. is, so if I lose any weight, I'm struggling. But I was uh, I was in a really bad place, and it, it took us a few weeks at least to accept that in my own head. 
once I did accept it though I was I was perfectly happy to be open about it and just again just be honest and just say look I've been suffering it's as simple as that this has gone on that's gone on as I say turn of the new year though started practicing like eight ten hours a day going berserk just out of nowhere I don't know if it was just because I'd reset things in my head or what but all of a sudden I had a new table a little bit of a clearer mind and I went berserk practicing for two or three months which led into the World Championships this year, at least getting to the I'd have ter- worst season I've ever had on tour, ever, even including the first two that I'd ever had years ago, but managed to salvage it slightly by getting to the Crucible, which is just my massive aim after the, after the new year, you know. So I felt, you know, after the Worlds, I'm sort of back to being me again. It's been, it's been literally like a year and a half, two years of... It's, I'm, I haven't even been myself, really. Um, so yeah, it's it's only recently where I felt I'm sort of back to that kind of way of thinking again, which is great. And in a way, suffering can bring a reward, can't it? Because having gone through all that now, you probably feel great about life that you've put that behind you. Yeah, um, it's not fully behind us, but yeah, it's 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 not in my head anywhere near the way it was. I've got stuff in place now, everything's sorted, you know, so I can just move on and concentrate, as I say, on the snooker and. We've, yeah, everything's fine. Like I say, long story short, everything's fine now, and there's nothing really affecting us in that way, like mentally or anything. Never mind all that, though. I've saved the really big question for last. <laughs> Who was the most famous person you ever had in your taxi? Oh, um, I actually had. Now I can't even remember. I don't know if he's the most famous. Probably is. What was the guy called out of Def Leppard? Um, Joe Elliott. Yes, it might have been Joe Elliott, the blonde, long blonde Yeah, guy. yeah, the I'd, singer. Yeah, yeah, I had Joe Elliott out of Def Leppard. I didn't even know who he was. He was just hanging about on a street corner as well. Right. And he says, can I get in? And really, I'm not supposed to do that as a private hire taxi driver. So Blue Line, if you're listening. Oh, so you're not meant to <laughs> pick not, up people you're, off no, the No, if you're private hire, you're not cover, supposed Gary. to. Yeah, yeah. I've blown my cover now, but I, I don't give, give a monkey's now. Like, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. don't think you'll be looking for your licence back at nah, this stage. not no, really. No, no. So... Yeah, picked him up off the corner of the street. He said he wanted to go to Yarm, which is like a little town. It's where a lot of the footballers live, isn't it? Yeah, Middlesbrough Gary Pallister area. and people yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was like, all right. And as, as I say, I didn't know who he was. Having a bit chat with him on the way and slowly realised he was trying to like hint to us that he was a, a you know in, in a big band. Like, uh, oh, so he wanted you to know who he was? He, I got the impression he was kind of, he was probably thinking, why after 10, 15 minutes has he not mentioned anything? As if he was vying for the attention. And he sort of kept hinting on, and eventually it came out, obviously, oh, yeah, I'm like the lead singer or whatever in Def Leppard. I went, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. And just had a bit chat on with him and stuff. And he goes, would you mind doing us a favour? He says, um, my Porsche's parked up round the corner near the train station. Would you mind, like, taking us there? And I says, have you been drinking the night, Joe? And he says, well, I've had a few, like, but don't worry about that. He says, do you just drop me near where my Porsche is, and if you wouldn't mind, just follow us back to the house, and then I'll pay you. I said, all right, no, no problem then. So dropped him at the train station, got it, got in his little Porsche and uh, drove about, it must have been another five mile or something. Um, and I, at this point, I'm still thinking, I don't know whether to believe the guy, you know what I mean? Whether he is even this person or whether he's going to pay us or anything. Or whether he's fit to drive a car. Yeah, he, he was all right in the car and he pulls up to this big estate, basically, you know, the, like gates and he, his house is right there and there's two women open the door waving and that like, I'm thinking oh my god yeah he's definitely telling the truth now like he's, he's lock for the, the gate he's putting the code in and that and just opening up and yeah he comes out and you know what it is I think the fare was only something like 65 quid all in all and he gave us 60 no it was like 67 68 pound and he gave us 70 pound 
That's not a great tip didn't, now. Is didn't it from even a rock store? No, nah, I thought, come on, like you give us eighty quid or something, you know, something like that. But now you give us a couple of pounds, just rounded it up, and I thought, yeah, hey, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> Some people are just tight. <laughs> That's just the way it is. But yeah, Joe Elliott, Def Leppard, never forget it. So hope you've enjoyed this look back over 2021 and that you'll continue to join us throughout the year ahead. You can listen to the full versions of all these interviews and episodes with the likes of Sean Murphy and Luca Brussell, as well as so many others, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and TuneIn. Or you can go to the WST website and social media platforms. The first episode of 22 will be with Barry Hawkins, ahead of his appearance in the Masters at Alexandra Palace. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and Happy New Year.